Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode 16 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Saul Mora. Saul, welcome to the show. Hey, Colin. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I haven't really talked to you in a while, so there's a lot to talk about, and that'll be good. Well, we've only got one hour, right? We have actually as much time as you want. I I realize that <laughs> I've started saying one hour, like that that's a limit, but there there is no limit. It's my show. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you don't have a producer breathing down your neck like, hey, you should end now before commercial, right? Yeah, no, I, I have I have only a rough I have only a rough guideline. It just happens to be that I usually run out of things to talk about between forty five minutes and an hour and fifteen minutes, so they tend to like hover around an hour. But that's entirely based on uh the fact that I I just feel like my my ability to keep asking interesting questions starts to tail off real hard about there. All right. Well, I'll try to uh, give you some interesting stories or something I'd, <laughs> so we can keep, not have filler time all the time. I, 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 I think that'll be perfect. Um, <laughs> that sounds excellent. It's, it's up to you. So I'm, I'm releasing the, 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 the reins of keeping it interesting to you. Um, anyway, Saul, uh, it's good to talk to you. How would people know you who aren't me? <laughs> and who aren't me. Uh, so I've been around, I guess, the iOS community for quite a while. Um, I've had my own uh, podcast called NS Brief uh, for a few years. Uh, I've recently given that the reboot, although uh, I haven't uh, posted any new episodes. Um, my plan with that is to uh, actually release a whole bunch of content that I have recorded <laughs> over the past maybe year or so that I've kind of been away from the U.S. And... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, get some of that stuff out there. But uh, some other things like maybe I'm uh, known for are uh, my various public speaking gigs around the world. So I've done a lot of conference talks uh, around Europe, around the U.S., uh, and lately also around China, which has been uh, fairly interesting. And um, I also wrote uh, way back in the day Magical Record, uh, which was uh, my, I guess, my... <laughs> My uh, introduction to core data myself, and uh, it seems to have helped uh, quite a bit of people. So, yeah, that, that's kind of uh, the basics around me. I've been doing iOS uh, since like 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, WWDC 2009 was my first one. Um, I've been writing code since like 2000. Um, yeah, I've been around, uh, yeah. I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm getting a little long in the neck beard these days, but, uh, I try to keep it real and keep my perspectives open to, to new ideas and fresh faces. Well, I, I, I think, you know, your face and perspectives have always been extremely fresh. Uh, I was going to try and make some kind of weird hip hop, uh, joke reference, but then once again, <laughs> whenever I try and think of a, of a joke, uh, I just totally lose it halfway through, and then the joke is that I forgot it. So that's just that, another episode of that. Um, what are you doing in China? How'd you get there? Oh, man, China. Well, China's been on my radar for a long time, to be honest. Um, I think maybe uh, my fascination started like in childhood. You know, I don't know if you ever watched like this old uh, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. There was one where like uh, 
somebody sat on Bugs Bunny and like he went through the ground and ended up in China. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that or if anybody remembers that, but I don't know. It was just kind of like, whoa, there's this weird place on the other side of the world that's China and it looks strange and it's there's real people and they do different things. It's I don't know. It's kind of maybe started there and then. Uh, over the years, I kind of had to learn about Chinese history in, in high school, and and uh, eventually I took uh, Chinese, the the language, uh, in um, in college. So mm-hmm. I I tried to learn Chinese for about a year. Um, I was super horrible at it, um, but it was super fascinating. The character language is, it's this really strange language of, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a system. It's not alphabetic uh, in the way that you think of uh, a set of characters that you can put together. But there are a collection of, I guess, base symbols that you can kind Uh of uh, mix together to make bigger characters. And then from those characters, you can put together other characters to make bigger words. And the language uh, is, to me, is very interesting. Um, It's still hard for me to learn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> despite how long I've tried. Um, but I think I'm getting better at it. But uh, uh, the one thing that I, that is one property of the Chinese language that is super fascinating is how artistic it is. Um, uh-huh. You know, sometimes you might think of like the English language having an artistic component in calligraphy. But I think for Western eyes, uh, like myself, um, seeing just Chinese writing on things just gives gives things a whole different dimension in uh, kind of visual aesthetics and uh, just something that's, I don't know, I think is more interesting. Um, so I just kind of uh, been gravitated toward that for, for a while. So yeah, my fascination with China has been around for a while. Also, if you've uh, followed me in the past, you'll know the business name that I chose was uh, Magical Panda. Uh, the panda kind of referring to uh, the pandas that live in China. So <laughs> it's always been, uh, again, on my radar um, mm-hmm. And and the character, uh, I don't know if you know, noticed that the character that I use as kind of the uh, the logo uh, for that that uh, business that I had uh, that was Bong. Uh, Bong mm-hmm. was a uh, is the character that means a stick like a, like a bow uh, like a martial arts weapon you know, mm-hmm. um, but in some slang it also means awesome. So, so kind of awesome. my, yeah, so my tagline was always, uh, there is no charge for awesome. And so that character meant awesome. <laughs> I was just trying to cool. kind of, you know, have it all circle around to be, uh, you know, the same kind of deal. That's fun. That's hey, yeah, several I, levels of that, of that joke. <laughs> um, in multiple languages as well. So I, I really tried really hard on that one. Yeah. It's like a layer cake. Um, <laughs> so you've been living in China now for about a year. Uh, actually more than a year. It's, more than uh, a year. as we're recording this, it's July. I think I came here, uh, it's July, 2017, almost August. Um, it, I came here like January, 2016. So more mm-hmm. than a year and a half now. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really been fun so far. Mm-hmm. And what, what's it like to, what's that like? What's it like to work in a, in a totally different country than where you grew up? Oh, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of expats that live in Europe uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, You know, a lot of the iOS community that I know does that. Um, And it's fine to live there because a lot of people speak English. And even if you don't, there's a really um, easy expat community to get involved with. And and there's Mm -hmm. one here as well. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm a 
I make things too hard on myself. And I, I've really tried to avoid the expats on purpose, not because I don't want to get to know people, but it's just more mm-hmm. like trying to force myself to learn more of the language, I guess. Um, but I don't mm-hmm. think that really helped. I think I shot myself in the foot on that one. So, um, But anyhow, to, to, to kind of live here is different than I think living in a, in a European style uh, area because everything is so different here. The mm-hmm. uh, the style of government is quite a bit different. Um, just the culture is different. The language is completely different. So you you can really f- feel isolated if you let it. Um, yeah, if, but uh, I guess for me, because I've been learning the language, it's been trying. I've been trying to uh, use that op- opportunity to to really get that uh, <laughs> get that skill. So. Mm-hmm. Do so. You're in Shanghai. Yeah, in Shanghai. Is that right. Yes. Cool. Um, do do a lot of people speak English there though? Like, if you uh, if you need to converse with a person, you know, to like buy something or what? Like, do a lot of people speak English there? Uh, so there are some people that do. Uh, if you go to if you go to a coffee shop, for example, and mm-hmm. the name is in English, um. Likely, you'll find a barista that speaks English occasionally. Uh, but if you go to like a, a tea shop that is has all Chinese characters on the on the top, most likely they won't speak English. But on occasion, they will have somebody that speaks English. So it's kind of mm-hmm. hit or miss. English is a big deal here in China. Um, the company I work at actually is uh, one that uh, focuses on teaching English to native Chinese speakers. But even before that, uh, a lot of Chinese people uh, speak English and learn to speak English from a really young age. Um, some, mm-hmm. some as young, I guess, as three, so they start really early as a, as a second language. But a lot of times mm-hmm. they, they have this class in school. So from like middle school, high school, uh, even university at some level, they, they have an English class. So a lot of people actually, they'll actually understand English, but they won't speak it very well. So maybe that mm-hmm. that's the case. So a lot of times when I'm in Shanghai, I'll speak English to the to the uh, Fu Yen, uh, and Fu Yen is the waiter, and uh, they'll they'll just kind of nod and like take my order, and, and it'll be okay. So, mm-hmm. so was it? So I wouldn't even know where to start if I wanted to <laughs> uh, move to China and sure. start working there. Like, what was involved in that? Like, what got you from here to there? Did you have, like, a company that sponsored you, or how did that go down? I would not recommend doing it the way that I did it, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. um, I um, I decided that uh, I wanted to take a break from the U.S. for a while, and I came to China and stayed with a friend uh, with no plan whatsoever. So my plan was to come to China and just kind of look around like I would in the U.S., look for jobs. Hey, I'm American. I've got a lot of experience. Yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. You should hire me because I'm cool. That kind of thing. Uh, so when I got here, I did that for um, maybe a, a week or two, week and a half or so, with uh, with no luck. But I had uh, luckily been befriended by a, a young local developer and... Uh, he pointed me in the direction of the first uh, Chinese-only 
developer conference here. Uh, it was in Beijing. It's called uh, At Swift. So mm-hmm. I uh, hastily uh, looked up the, the website for that conference and tried to get a ticket. And uh, since it was about three days before the event that I was uh, <laughs> made aware of this event, uh, that I found out that it was sold out, <laughs> I was a little bummed. I was like, geez, I need to go. And then so I'm like, okay, who's, who's the speakers? <laughs> who's going to this thing? Uh, it turns out that uh, Greg Eidhoff and uh, Chris Hill, uh-huh. um, or, or Greg, Greg Hill, Chris Eidhoff, I got those names backwards, uh-huh. um, they both were, were speakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, so uh, Greg and I had actually worked together on a core data book project that I had done with him. So, um, so I I pinged him, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll talk to the organizers and I'll get back to you." And so this was like, uh, I think maybe the day before the conference. So uh, he got back to me like the evening before. He was just like, "Hey, don't worry about it. Just show up, and uh, they'll take care of you." I was like. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's uh, that's great service. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I show up the next kind of ominous sounding too. <laughs> uh, it's like slightly ominous, like they're going to take care of you. <laughs> yeah, in a in a Chinese government style way, like oh, we'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it's maybe not so bad, but uh, it yeah, it was it would turned out okay. You know, I, I went to the uh, the conference the next morning. It was at a local university in Beijing, and. Uh, you know, I, I wait in line, you know, uh, it's a really long line because that's what, what happens when you're in China. There's lots of long lines. And uh, I get to the front and then my name's not on the registration. I was like, uh-oh, that's not what taking care of me really means. And then uh, the one of the organizers comes up and pulls me aside and like, yeah, here's all your stuff. Uh, here's your ticket. Here's a, here's a shirt or a sweater or something. And yeah, have fun. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. And uh, it was like really personalized service actually for a while. And uh, not only that, so when uh, in the uh, for the event for the conference, they had a uh, a WeChat group. Uh, WeChat is uh-huh. the local huge nationwide instant messaging services, and uh, you can uh, create large chat groups. And so they invited me into the chat room, and they introduced me. And they didn't really introduce me very much. They just kind of said, "Hey, it's Saul. He's from America, and whatever." And all of a sudden, like uh, half the room was like, "Hey, Saul, uh, you're awesome! Thanks for Magical Record." I was like, "What? <laughs> you guys know all this stuff?" Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it was. It's it's been kind of like that for a long time. Like every time I go to a conference, like, "Hey, thanks for writing Magical Record," and even more so here in China. And I was like, "Oh, hey, that's awesome! Thanks for using Magical Record. It was. Uh, I'm glad it helped uh, helped you out on your apps." So. So yeah, so apparently I had a, a a few people that followed me here. So, well, that's useful. <laughs> yeah, certainly helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. So towards the end of the day, you know, I, I'd go do this conference, talk to people, sit in on sessions, um, at least the ones that I can understand, which were in English. Uh, back then, my Chinese was even worse, so I understood even less. Uh, so um, you know, I just talk to people, try to try to look for jobs opportunities around here and then um i don't know i was talking to dudes and then i talked to this one dude his name is tang chow and uh turns out he's like a super famous uh chinese developer um he has a, a private wechat um uh service i don't know what service uh-huh. like a kind of like a blog but only available on wechat 
So he has one of those with something like fifty to eighty thousand followers or something like this. It's, wow. a, it's yeah, it's pretty insane. And so we were talking, I was telling him I was looking for some work, and he's like, Well, rather than you going to look for work everywhere else, which could take forever, why don't you let everybody come to you? Why don't you just give me a, a short introduction? I'll translate it and then um I'll just post it on my blog and then everybody will talk to you. And I was like, well, that's cool. Thanks. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. And uh, so he did that. And, uh, you know, my phone was buzzing nonstop for two days straight. Uh, just, wow. yeah, just talking to people and stuff. So, you know, I got a lot of interest from just companies that were big, small, uh, not interesting, mm-hmm. super interesting. Um, a lot of them were in Beijing, a lot in Shanghai. There was some in uh, Chengdu uh, and some in Guangzhou. And, uh, and and probably everybody listening probably doesn't know where any of those places are <laughs> other than yep. other than Beijing and Shanghai. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so yeah, so I talked to a few people, a few companies. I end up going for an interview at uh, in Guangzhou. Uh, Guangzhou is uh, kind of near Hong Kong. Um, it's maybe a, an hour train ride away, so it's not so far. But uh, so I end up going there. And uh, talking to Tencent, Tencent is the maker of WeChat. And then I also talk mm. talk to the current company I work at, Luli Shuo, um, and they're here in Shanghai, obviously. And uh, yeah, just, just started working here a couple months later, and yeah, been working here ever since. But I would not recommend this path to anybody <laughs> if you're interested in, in working in China for at all. So, so the path that you just said, to be clear was that you go to China without really a plan because and stay with a friend because you decide you're sick of the United States and then go to a conference that you find out about a couple days before it's happening and then happen to get somebody to post about you on their popular WeChat uh, group because you made a because you previously years before made a popular open source component that's not the plan you would suggest people follow <laughs> it seems hard to replicate <laughs> uh, to me i every time i tell that story i still feel like uh, i am the dumb luckiest dude around um yeah this would yeah this this is definitely not the thing that you could replicate but if you manage to find yourself with similar dumb luck, uh, yeah, that's super awesome. And I would love to hear your story as well. Yeah, I have. So, yeah, I have heard I had heard. That, so let me slow down. <laughs> the thing that was interesting to me, number one that you just said was I had heard that WeChat was like a big thing in China. Like, you know, we have it other places. But I had heard that it is like a big thing in China, you know, more than anywhere else. I did not realize it was that much of a thing there compared to uh, other places. Yeah, WeChat's a pretty big deal here. Um, I think it's everybody has it. Um, the thing is, is like there's a lot of different kinds of phones. <laughs> Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, there's Android phones and uh, there's iPhones, and I guess maybe there are other phones. I don't know, <laughs> but. The one thing all of these phones have in common is WeChat. So uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of the big unifying factor around here. If your device can run WeChat, 
your family and friends can talk to each other and you can make new friends fairly easily. Uh, WeChat's uh-huh. super interesting uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously, one, because of the group chat management. Just uh, the way that you add people is through a QR code or you can look them up, obviously. But QR codes are a big deal in China. And having seen before I came to China, I saw the kind of the designer backlash against QR codes. But, man, they are super interesting and they are super fast, low-tech solution. They they work 100% of the time. It's actually not a bad thing, as people think. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just maybe if you insert them in your ads tastefully rather than just a big, giant ad with a QR code in the middle of it. <laughs> maybe that's not the most tasteful way to do it. But as for useful factor, it's super easy. So, for example, on WeChat, I can actually pay for food. I can pay for my bills. I pay for my utilities on WeChat. Um, mm-hmm. I um, transfer money. We can do Hongbao, uh, which is uh, the red envelopes, just kind of gift money to people. Um, there's also WeChat apps. There's the blogs. So mm-hmm. WeChat does a whole bunch of stuff there. And the QR codes are a super useful way to say – I'm at a restaurant or a fast food place, whatever, and I want to pay. I can just go to WeChat, turn on the scan function, scan that restaurant's uh, WeChat ID uh, sticker, which is right in front of the cash register, and then it'll automatically mm-hmm. look up their uh, account. And as soon as I enter on the price and hit enter, it transfers the money from my WeChat account to theirs. And voila, I've paid my bill uh, very instantly with no fuss regarding uh, like NFC or Apple Pay uh, or anything like that. Uh, It's just kind of already done. And it's very fast, very efficient. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Have you ever used an app called uh, Line? I've never heard of that one. Yeah, Line I think does some of what you said. I don't think it's big like in like WeChat is in some places. But uh Line I think is real popular in uh Japan and maybe in Korea also. And it does um some of what you said with like uh using QR codes to like add friends and other things like that. You can send people money. I don't think it's not as big as WeChat, but I was uh it seems like it does some of those similar things. Yeah. Well, I think WeChat also does a lot more things as well, which uh, is pretty crazy. Uh-huh. I mean, I think you can – there's like little mini apps in there. I think you can hail a taxi. You can find a movie. <laughs> you can um, you can get coupons for stuff now. I don't even – I don't have nearly all the things enabled in there uh, as you should, mm-hmm. <laughs> as I guess maybe a, a native uh, Chinese person would have enabled. But yeah, it, this thing does a lot. Um, one of the big things that I think WeChat is doing around here are these things called mini apps. Um, so a lot of times it really seems like WeChat is trying to take over the need for uh, any device in particular. So they're trying to develop WeChat as a platform. So they have, you know, they announced WeChat apps, I think a year ago or something. And uh, it really feels a lot like this is the current version of the browser wars. Uh, You know, Uh back in the day (laughs) when I was a youngling, uh, there was not just uh, Safari um, and there wasn't just Chrome. There was actually Internet Exploder and there was uh, Firefox and, uh, you know, there was uh, uh, Netscape Navigator, the Mosaic. Uh 
you know, there was, uh, you know, all the browsers back then. And for a while, from, I think, uh, Internet Explorer 3 through 6, there was like these huge browser wars. Everybody was trying to one-up each other in, in features and functionality. And they were like, with the web browser, there's not going to be really any need for uh, an operating system. The browser will be the operating system because that's all you need. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of settled down after uh, IE6. Uh, people settled on that for a while, and then they they eroded their market share to like uh, Firefox, Chrome, and Safari. Um, so now it feels like things are a little more uh, even uh, in the browser space these days. But uh, but WeChat really wants to be that thing that you need instead of the operating system. Like you don't need they want it to be like you don't need iOS, you need WeChat instead. And in, in China mm-hmm. they've kind of done that. Uh, but that also means that these apps are kind of an interesting thing. So now there's things called mini apps. I think I, I think I have one. Mm-hmm. I, I need to look at this because um, it turns out like there are a couple of startups that are doing uh, apps here. One of them is to teach English. Again, English being a huge business here in China. One is to teach English mm-hmm. in kind of an Uber style. So uh, the Uber, I guess. Uh, model is that whenever you need a taxi, you just push a button and a taxi will get you, right? Or cab, car, whatever uh-huh. it is. Well, this model, somebody will come, pick you up, take you wherever you need to go, and you're done. Well, uh-huh. so the model here for this kind of language learning is whenever you're ready for a language lesson, a teacher will be available and teach you a lesson and kind of help you pick up where you left off. So the way to enable uh-huh. this you need to have a platform with a lot of people on it, like WeChat, and you need to, uh, you know, have the, you know, the underlying mechanism to notify somebody and uh, connect people with some kind of uh, chat and text uh, uh, functionality, which is WeChat, and you also have to have a, a way mm-hmm. to charge people and transfer money to people. And that's WeChat. So it, it kind of makes yeah. sense that all this stuff kind of is together for WeChat. And, uh, you know, they're, they're doing some interesting things. And so, you know, that seems like an interesting mm-hmm. idea. I think it'll, you know, it has some merit. Um, but I think for me, uh, personally, as an app developer, I like, I, I kind of like the, the extra experience. But I really feel like WeChat is kind of the no frills base experience because there's no with these mini apps it's much more apps on the server side so the way that they develop things is is very you know back-end oriented and all of the interface is all native wechat there's hardly any customization at all there's like basically a little toolbar that replaces the 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 message bar at the bottom of your chat window and they have some menu buttons Mm -hmm. to kind of pop up some extra screens but you know you you can add some extra customization, but it doesn't. It always feels clunky to me. But I also feel like the way that the Chinese culture goes is it doesn't really. They don't really care. They just want to push a button and get their, uh, you know, get their thing really quick. They don't really care how it looks sometimes. So mm-hmm. at least that's my impression. I'm I'm not really sure if that's the truth, but I really feel like that because. Yeah, there, there's like almost no Chrome customization whatsoever on this in this kind of experience. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think it's like to be a designer making something like that, right? Something that just does like everything, like one of these kitchen sink, you know, kind of things. I 
I have never worked on something like that. It seems like it would be really crazy to me to do something which does. I mean, I guess the Facebook app is a little bit like that, right? <laughs> but like something it just does like a thousand things. Like, how do you even approach like designing that in any kind of coherent way? What do you think? You, you know, this is kind of the weird thing that I've noticed about Chinese apps too. They are, they really like to have kitchen sink apps. They like apps that do everything. So um, I also have uh, Alipay, or um, you can call it Jifubao, uh in Chinese. And uh, Alipay is a glorified uh, Apple Wallet uh, replacement, which also uh-huh. works off of uh, QR codes. But it also has – it connects to your bank, and you can transfer money into it. It's like their own mini bank as well. But um, the Alipay app, if you open it, Oh my gosh! It has everything in that you can transfer money overseas. Uh, you can you can uh, buy a movie ticket. Um, uh, you can also order a taxi. Let me see what else we we can do with this. Um, you can pay your utilities. I can pay for my phone bill. Oh, I can get a bike share. Um, let me see. I have moving packages. Um, I can buy gasoline. What the heck? Oh my gosh! I can get an overseas very SIM card. Strange. Um, yeah, I can play the lottery. Uh, I can do wealth management. I can buy insurance. I can pay for campus stuff. Um, I can, yeah, there's, there's just crazy stuff, but this is the thing. I don't know why Chinese like these apps is to me, this is a replacement for like the, the springboard. And I'm wondering if it's because Mm -hmm. of some of the tight restrictions on apps from the Chinese government. But this is Mm -hmm. all speculation just because um, recently, like, um, Apple had to take down uh, the VPN apps for China. So VPNs Uh are a big deal for how uh, foreigners and anybody interested in, you know, non-state-run operations want to, um, you know, communicate with the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. VPNs are a big deal. And... Recently, there's been some hiccups about uh, the Chinese government uh, basically taking down access to all VPNs, and that's been a big deal the last couple of weeks. And just recently, Apple took down all of the VPN apps off of the Chinese app store. So if you have an international account, you can still get them, but the Chinese app store, you can't. So I wonder if something like that Mm -hmm. motivates them to have all all this functionality that they can enable and disable uh, in these apps, or if it's just more of Chinese thinking in that they just want to be very efficient. If you look at the language, if you've ever tried to read Chinese text, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a very square language, very grid-like. Um, and it's also, unless you are a native speaker, you can actually read Chinese in three different directions, left to right, <laughs> right to left, which is kind mm-hmm. of the old Chinese style, or top to bottom. So three directions you can read this language. And uh, yeah, and that, that block-oriented layout maybe has conditioned their, their brains to thinking in this block-grid-oriented structure. So a lot of these apps, if you open them up, have a lot of grids in them. And if you've ever looked at a Chinese website, it's very grid-like, very blocky, and very dense. And I just wonder if it has to do with the language itself, um, as everybody's kind of used to that pattern. I have no idea. <laughs> well, well I, I don't but... know either. I, this is t- 
totally both. These are both yeah, yeah, theories. Yeah. I, I'm kind of thinking the the latter theory is more valid um, because it's more of a c- cultural thing. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. <laughs> but it's interesting. Well, I think it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense uh, in different countries to have apps which um, uh, which work cross platform like that, since maybe more people are using more different kinds of phones than they are uh, in a place like the United States, where, you know, I feel like a very high percentage of people are, you know, running a fairly uh, recent Android phone or an iPhone or something, uh, where, I mean, I know very little about this other than what I've heard, which is that uh, in some other countries, such as China, perhaps, is that, uh, you know, the variety is much higher of you know, the things, and some of them may have access to uh, things like the Google Play services, and some of them may not. And it's it's just, it's it's much different. I don't know if that's <laughs> correct or not. Yeah, I'm not so sure either. I mean, I, I know what I know because I'm in my, my American bubble even while I live here. So I have, have access to things mm-hmm. that other people don't. So I, I don't think I'll, I'll get like the full picture. Um, but, you know, I I just see what I see from other people and I don't know. That's just kind of my guess right now. So moving on, uh, what is, you know, so you're working in China with uh, developers who are from China. Uh, What is the difference in sort of culture and uh, work style uh, there versus what you were used to working in the United States? So, so working here is similar. Um, and I think the company I work at might be a lot different than most Chinese companies. Uh, their their CEO and co-founder uh, is a former Google employee. And actually, they've got a lot of uh, former Google employees as uh, their lead researchers. Um, the app I work on has a lot of uh, uh, higher level computer science stuff. So they have like some AI machine learning and uh, things like that to help uh, customize courses automatically for learners. And uh, mm-hmm. I think with a lot of that background, they try to make things as maybe maybe try to change things a little bit. Um, but there are still things that stay similar. Um, I think there's uh, always this idea of uh, the number of hours that you're at the office is the actual number of hours that you work, which I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not a big fan of that mentality myself. Um, I tend to try to keep my American style of working and put in my, my time for the day, work extra time if it's needed for a particular task and try to take, uh, you know, a kind of a bigger break for my time for the day. Um, but a lot of the mm-hmm. times when, like during the day, uh, you know, people will take a nap in the middle of the day. They'll go to the gym for a couple of hours. Um, we have a gym downstairs and, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. eats up a good three or four hours in the middle of the day. So you still get your personal time, but you're there until like nine or 10 at night or something. And I, I, yeah, and I, wow. I'm not a big fan mm-hmm. of that. So, you know, I've got stuff to do. I've still got to take my Chinese class. So I go, I've got to leave a little early. I try to get some exercise in now. So I go to spin class and try to leave early for that. So, so yeah, I, it's mm-hmm. maybe that's kind of a, a bit of a, a cultural barrier for me. But as far as, I think work style, this company is also a little, I feel like they've, they've learned a little bit. They feel very open to ideas. Um, there is some top down for management. There is a lot of 
kind of bottom up, I guess, praise of uh, mm-hmm. of the the leaders. I guess I, I'm really not sure how to describe it in a friendly way because I don't see it as anything that's really bad. But um, I think that yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's it's just the way it is here. But but uh-huh. um, yeah, I. I t- <laughs> I think I lost my train of thought there. Uh, it's just, just cause that's okay. As far as the openness to the, to feedback, I, I think there's a lot of that in this particular company. Whereas I hear from, from other people that that's mm-hmm. not the deal. And I also know people that work mm-hmm. at other foreign companies and, and they, they all say it's kind of similar to this. You know, they, they, they work decent hours and then they, um, you know, they're, they're open to feedback. People make suggestions where, um, I see a lot of like local businesses, for example, like on my way to work, I'll walk to work and I see like the hair salons. <laughs> There's a lot of them apparently out here. And in the morning, if you come mm-hmm. out at a certain hour, uh, the, the managers and the employers are outside. And if you've ever seen like maybe documentaries of China where you have like, vast swaths of people lined up in a grid doing group exercises together. Uh, think of that with a group mm-hmm. of about 10 people, maybe 20, uh, and outside of hair salon doing the same thing. And they do that a lot. And it it boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, this is my, my vision of how maybe non-foreign computer companies might be working. A very authoritarian you know, style of management. Um, but I, I don't think I have that here, which is nice. <laughs> They've been open to my ideas and I've really tried to, to help, help bring some American mm-hmm. ideas, uh, as far as process and things go. Um, but some things are harder to change than others, I guess. Well, for sure. I mean, every company is going to be different, uh, regardless of what country you're in. Right. Uh, I mean, Working in the United States, I mean, there's probably a slightly different style than there would be in a place like China or a different country. But, uh, you know, you still have places where the direction is a lot more top down versus places where, you know, it's a little bit more open. I I, I think that's pretty normal. Yeah, I think it's normal, too. Um, But, hmm. yeah, I think just maybe the style of authoritarian <laughs> leadership is... Uh, uh, Maybe a little strange for for you mm-hmm. and me, but maybe it's completely normal for everybody here. I, I really don't know, but I, I don't have, yeah, I don't have to deal with that firsthand. I guess. Yeah, I I mean I really don't know because I've never seen it or <laughs> experienced it, so I have no idea. So I just have your word uh, to take it on. Um, so uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is we were talking about Magical Record and um, you know, which I think most of the people listening probably are familiar with, which was a. Uh, kind of a wrapper and um thing sort of how would you describe it? kind of a wrapper for core data in order to make it uh and convenience methods in order just to make it a little bit easier to do kind of yeah, common things i think my my tagline was uh super happy awesome fetching uh, <laughs> for core data <laughs> yeah yeah so how did that so you said that was kind of your introduction to core data was making you know magical record what was yeah, you know, what was that experience like, you know, making this, uh, you know, probably collection of categories or whatever in the beginning, and then eventually it, uh, 
you know, blowing up to this thing that is used in apps by all kinds of people? What what was that experience like? Well, that that experience was super uh, unexpected, I guess. Um, uh, all I wanted to do was uh, make something that was helpful for me. Um, I think at the time I was working for a consulting agency. I think you and I, we, we had worked there kind of, uh, you had just stopped working there and, and I just mm-hmm. started and I had gotten this app and, uh, it was using core data and it was taking upwards of 10 minutes to download some 2000 records or something. And it was, yeah, it was it was oh, not, wow. downloading to, was instant basically. It only took like a few seconds, but to uh-huh. go through the the data, import it, and save it into the app. You know, we had this really nice waiting screen with a progress bar, and it you had to have. And this was before backgrounding, uh-huh. so you had to leave it open for it, or else it would it would uh-huh. uh, terminate, and you'd have to redo the whole process again. And uh, it was a uh, it was a nightmare, and. Um, I think all I wanted to do was, and this is how I approach most problems, is to tackle uh, the actual cause of the problem. I'll take the current one and try to divide it up into smaller ones. And for me, what I wanted to do was, like, since I was, it was all bottlenecked on the core data importing step, uh, what I wanted to do was mm-hmm. separate all of the pieces of what core data was doing and so I was able to say, well, here's, you know, like the sample code will kind of put all of the core data stuff in one large chunk. And you have this big blob of code that you copy and paste everywhere. And what I started doing was extracting those things into methods. And I was like, well, I don't want to really keep extracting these things into separate methods on the view controllers or controllers or whatever else I had. So why don't I just make categories? And I figured out what categories were and how the category inheritance worked and, uh, you know, decided to to just extract them once. And now I could, you know, reuse this particular piece of logic everywhere very easily. And now I had kind of a a building block of like, well, it's this step. Now what's the next step after fetch? Well, now I need to save or now I need to uh, do something else. And, uh, you know, we just kind of break down everything like that just to make it into smaller chunks. And, as far mm-hmm. as developing it, that's really what it came out of. I just wanted to understand the code. And once I can uh, get a lot of the boilerplate repeated code out and just make it into smaller one-line self-documenting style of code, which is, you know, some entity find this prop find by this property with this value, that style of code, it makes it easier to really figure mm-hmm. out everything. And uh, it just kind of grew from there as far mm-hmm. as like how I wrote it. But, you know, the, the rise to stardom was uh, uh, totally unexpected. Um, you know, I had put it out there with a really dumb name <laughs> and uh, I had some help. I had some help getting a, mm-hmm. a better name uh, from Justin Williams. And uh, he's, he was like, hey, mm-hmm. you should just name this magical record. I'm like, well, that's better. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> And yeah, so well, nice. he, he knew my, my company and he knew Active Record. He was like, yeah, just combine the two. I'm like, well, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and so I think part of it was the name change. And part of it was that um, I had, uh, since I lived in Denver for a while, um, I would go to the Colorado Springs uh, Cocoa Heads meetup occasionally where I met with uh, Matt Long. And 
he had asked me some uh-huh. stuff about core data, um, which is curious because uh, he had worked with Marcus Zara for a long time. So I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm not sure why he asked me. Maybe maybe he just wasn't there at the time. But uh, he, he had asked me about it. I'm like, uh-huh. well, you know, I wrote this whole stuff. Why don't I, instead of just telling you about it, um, why don't I just blog about it? And then you can post it on your Coco is my girlfriend blog. And I think that's really where it took off. Um, because I had had it all on GitHub already and, uh, yeah, people started using it and people really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, that from there, I tried to put some effort into making it easier for people to use. I mean, it's certainly a developer level code, so it's not like uh, a UI component where you can, uh, just drop it in there Mm -hmm. and call one class and then that's it. This one needed a lot of configuration, but, um, I, I really tried to make that easier, but it was, um... I think still a little advanced for, for some people. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, uh, it was a, I think it was a, a good project. Um, uh, it still has its use. It still has like over 10,000 stars on GitHub, which is still blows my mind. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still, I think something that gets me a lot of places that I feel, um, I, I feel like a one trick pony sometimes because I don't, have other open source things that are as popular, but I mean, I don't think of myself as kind of this open source library factory either, <laughs> but yeah, I think it would be nice if, uh, mm-hmm. if I wrote something that other people enjoyed, but you know, if I don't, it doesn't happen, I guess. Well, that's a good one though. Uh, and definitely a lot of people, you know, uh, are familiar with it, especially, you know, I mean, when I, I used it in a couple of apps, I think, uh, you know, when I was, writing in Objective-C more than Swift. Um, these days, I think it's all just been Swift with just plain core data. Uh, although I think core data has gotten a little better than it used to be. Like maybe there's less of a need now. Like it has, like they've added a lot of that convenience back into the actual framework. <laughs> yeah, I think they have like uh, like a core data persistent container or something. Um, which basically is mm-hmm. this whole idea of the core data stack object that I had uh, written for the 3.0 version of Magical, Magical Record. So yeah, they I think they know this at some level, but I think they're also, the core data team is a little slow to add these things in. Um, just I think they go on the side of uh, deliberate improvement rather than radical improvement, <laughs> which, which is good. I mean, they want it to be a mm-hmm. stable, uh, fast performance, uh, framework. Um, but I, I think they're also erring on the side of, uh, making sure that they, they don't, they're not the responsible party for losing any of your data. So I think, uh, they err on the side of caution a lot, which is you know, good and bad. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would much rather, uh, them be on the side of making sure all of the code that they write is, uh, you know, very solid and very, you know, uh, doesn't break in a lot of obvious ways. Although it is very easy for as a user to do the wrong thing with core data because it is such a uh, kind of a complicated framework, I think, or just the ways that the things that may give you performance problems with it are so unpredictable, I feel like for somebody who's new at it. Uh, that you really have to have a few years with it to kind of get a feel for how to just make this work in an effective way when you're dealing with, uh, you know, something that actually deals with a decent amount of data. If you're not dealing with much data, you could use any, you could use a P list. It wouldn't matter, right? Um, but for, for, a, <laughs> yeah, I wish, yeah. 
Well, yeah, and that's that's actually the reason that I I wrote some of the other helpers as well. So, um, you know, like, you know, my motivation to write core data was um, was also to figure out how to use it correctly because you know, like you said it's really easy for noobs to make a mistake. Well, I started from the new position and I was making a lot of mistakes. And once I figured out how to not make those mistakes, mm-hmm. what I do and what I always do and what I have done with core data was make a, a short little helper function that lets me kind of boil down the things that I need to do into a couple of parameters and kind of make that into a reusable mm-hmm. pattern that, I basically won't ever get wrong myself. So, um, so I don't make the same mistake on my own and uh, shoot myself in the foot twice, so to speak. So that's what I did. So one example of that is the core data threading model. Threading in core data is, uh, was, a, it was a real <laughs> it, pain. It was a real pain. It was more of a pain back in the day before the, uh, stuff that they're doing now with the, the, parent context deal um Uh it's still kind of a pain now but less so i think um but before you you had to always have a second context and you had to always use ns notifications and you always had to do these things with threads and you had to always do this huge setup in order to get it to work and i was like okay i want to do it right but i don't want to write all this code all the time because this is stupid (laughs) why isn't this a reusable pattern so Uh that's where i had had my inspiration of having basically uh, a save block uh, for core data. So basically what I would do is say, core data, here's uh, a save block. You set up the extra context that I need to save this data in, and I'll pass the data to you in the context, and then you do it. So I got the inspiration from animation UI animation blocks uh, mm-hmm. from UIKit, obviously. And I was like, well, why isn't it this easy? Well, e- easy, quote unquote. Um, so that all I had to do was pass the data over to that block in a thread safe way. And all of that underlying setup, notification, uh, build up, tear down, all that stuff was already done. So and that's all it did. So yeah. I just made myself an easy reusable pattern and it worked. And mm-hmm. the proof was in the, this t- one time where I had to try to mm-hmm. do it without the pattern. Nice. And I messed it up. <laughs> I was like, why isn't this working? Ah, oh, I better go look at my code in, in Magical Record. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, it's this one stupid little thing that I forgot. Like, oh, well, of course, if I had done it in my own library, I would have not had to, you know, make that same mistake. So, uh, yeah, in, in a lot of cases, that's really why I want to do it. And And really the key, I think, to anybody kind of going into code, going into old code or new code or new problems. The the idea here that, that I do all the time is break it down into something that's super simple. I am, every time I run into really big, large, complex chunks of code, um, I get dizzy. Like almost literally I get dizzy. I like, I can't, the code starts to blur in my eyes. I'm like, I can't read uh-huh. this. Um, sometimes I th- I feel like I'm lazy but I think it's just the way that my mind works. I feel like I'm a very simple kind of person. I like to build. Co- I like to build complex ideas off of simpler ideas. Is maybe how, how mm-hmm. I think I think I work. And so if I come into like really big chunks of code like that, I like to to look for those patterns in that code, extract a method, 
break it down into the, the steps that are actually there, try to find the pattern. And then I've, I've got something that I can work with. Basically I try to turn it into like little blocks of inputs and outputs and things. And, um, that's, that's always worked for me. Um, I think for me though, it takes longer to do this approach, but mm-hmm. on the other side of the token, um, generally I'll have less issues when it comes to bugs. Um, so it's kind of a give or take. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it ends up taking less time overall to do things, uh, you know, in a more modular way where you break things down to their smaller components. Um, the rule I try and follow is to, you know, keep all of my methods to at or below about 10 lines of code. Right. Uh, because I feel like it's really a hard for me to actually write like actively bad code if I just kind of if i just even keep that in mind of just keep each method as small as possible it's pretty hard for me to write code that just doesn't make any sense or is actively bad i don't know sure but when you get into like something like a object-oriented programming where you actually use inheritance um you know a short uh a short function could be deceptively short uh, especially if you call something like a super func- on that function, right? Uh-huh. So if you inherit like a, a view did load function, for example, you know the the super class might have a whole bunch of stuff that it's calling that's even more complex. But you know, in some ways, it's nicely abstracted away into one step. That complexity is kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, but you know, it's still something that you want to keep in mind if it's if it's still something that's client code or I guess maybe your code. Um, you know, if if you're inheriting from your own mm-hmm. base class, you know, just because it's in a base class doesn't mean that the complexity isn't there. Um, so, so you definitely want to keep keep a, For sure. keep an eye on that. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm aware of that. Also, I just. The the greater principle for me is just when I'm writing my code to think about it in like what is the smallest components I can break everything into, and you know obviously yeah if you're inheriting from something which is also doing more complex things uh, that's that still exists right that's still a problem that you need to deal with. Yeah, and I think a lot of this is really trying to figure out the right level of complexity <laughs> uh, that you're comfortable with. Um, and mm-hmm. for me that my threshold is really low <laughs> and uh, yeah. And so I really try to boil it down, but, uh, um, yeah, just finding those small blocks, small building blocks is like, you know, we're, we're starting to use Swift lint in our code base now and kind mm-hmm. of, we have the threshold. There's a, there's a rule in there where you can use, um, where you can limit the number of lines in a function. And there's another one to measure cyclomatic complexity. Um, mm-hmm. cyclomatic complexity is basically the number of branches in your function. Mm-hmm. So if you have an if something else something, that's two branches. And if you have a mm-hmm. switch statement with, you know, n number of branches, you know, that, that, does, that goes in there. And if you have like a, a switch within an else, well, that kind of, uh, you know, makes it even more, <laughs> more branches and branches. So, um, you know, once you have a really high level of complexity, it, it really gets unmanageable. Um, uh-huh. And so Swift Lint is kind of our guideline. And even now we have our um, thresholds as uh, the number of lines is about 100, I believe. And our <laughs> cyclomatic complexity as uh, maybe 30 or something. And uh-huh. I do that just to be generous with the team. <laughs> we, have a f- yeah. we have a few functions in there. But I mean, personally, I never get close to that limit. But 
um, you know, I've caught a few lines of code, or you know, a few few functions that that kind of trigger that warning, and so we try to mm-hmm. we try to refactor that code and boil it down. So, so yeah, it's good to be able to kind of catch that yourself ahead of time and have these tools to do it. But yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tried Swift Lint a while ago. I haven't tried it again. Maybe I'll. I may need to give it another shot. I remember it. I don't know. I remember it just seeming kind of like a lot of over, for some reason it just well, felt like so more overhead than it was Well, so if you are a one man shop um, and you have your own style guide that you re- adhere to religiously, uh, maybe not so big of a deal. Um, even a two man shop, maybe you guys can agree on the code style. But if you have like a you know a five a ten person iOS team, which I would say is maybe on the larger side of of any developer team, let alone iOS team, uh, it might be a good idea. Or if you live, or not if you live, if you work in an organization that has 20, 30, 40, 100 iOS developers, maybe they're not all on the same team, but they're still part of the same organization, uh, having a common uh, uh, guideline that you can enforce with a tool like SwiftLint can actually be useful. Um, because if you want developers to be kind of interchangeable between teams, you know, styling differences uh, really need to not be part of that worry and part of that transition. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely a, probably more helpful on the larger larger end of team size. Yeah, that makes sense. I uh, For me, it's probably a trait of that I have mostly worked on smaller teams. Like you're saying like 50, 100 iOS developers were like the biggest company I've ever worked for had like, you know, 50 <laughs> employees total, right? Like in, like maybe like 20 developers. Like I've, I've mostly worked for smaller places. Um, so Saul, uh, you know, we have run out of the things which were on the list that I made before I started recording. Uh, although we are also coming up on an hour. Like I said, that's not on purpose. That just happens to be what happens. Uh, also, my rice cooker went off a second ago. Um, I was wondering what was beeping in the background. I can totally hear all that. Yeah, it plays, uh, I think it plays Beethoven or something uh, at the end of uh, cooking rice. It, it, it makes really good rice. It's a, it's a Zoji Rushi rice cooker. <laughs> it uh, makes really good rice. It was kind of costly, but uh, it takes like two hours to make like two cups of rice. <laughs> takes so oh, long. Man. You need an express rice cooker. Um, Jeez. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's quality. It's, it's a quality oh, yeah. thing though. Anyway, <laughs> the more important thing is thank you for coming on the show and how can people find you? Well, uh, so I do tweet occasionally, uh, though being in China, my tweets are basically around when everybody sleeps. <laughs> so you can find me mm-hmm. there on, uh, at Casa de Mora. And, I also have been taking and posting pictures of my travels in China. Uh, so you can follow me on Instagram and uh, see what life is like uh, in China on occasion. See how things go from there. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's usually the, the most places I'm at these days. Awesome. And uh, as always, if you would like to follow me, you can do so on Twitter at Colin Donnell. You can follow the show at The Run Loop. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, uh, you can join the growing number of uh, a few patrons and uh, support the show at patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. Uh, Saul, once again, 
Thank you so much for coming on the show and have a great rest of your morning. All right. Thanks, Colin. See you too.